Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. You can apply pressure on any side of that beach ball um, and that will push the air and the pressure onto your business in, in an array, in a 360-degree array of, of outcomes. And that pressure will create a response. And that's kind of the marketplace, right? So it could be internal pressure, it could be external, whatever it might be. What risk management's doing is it's saying, it's acknowledging you are in the sphere rather than just on a, a linear financial component, right? Rather than pure financial risk. Yep. Profit and loss, we have money running out of cash, insolvency. What we're saying is... Um, for us to be resilient in this moment, what does that mean? And that could mean just staying still. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our season sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. Our current sponsor is Tank with a C, and we're most grateful for their support too. I'm a massive fan of Tank because they're pioneers in the world of government engagement. In fact, they might have even come up with the term or been the first to use it themselves. They are reimagining government relations to make it far more accessible and catered to the needs of the for-purpose sector. To learn more about Tank, just hit the link in our show notes or head to tank.com.au. My guest today is old mate Drew Corby. Drew is one of the first people I met in the podcasting world in about 2016. He was the host of the awesome Pathways podcast. He's launched and supported a range of startups, mainly in the ed tech space. And whilst being a highly competent musician and golfer, his day job is head of risk strategy and enablement at Aware Super. Aware Super is one of Australia's largest profit for members super funds. I wanted to invite Drew on the podcast because he's a good mate and one of the people I enjoy talking to the most outside of the podcast. He has a beautiful mind and it's always staggered me how someone so creative and talented ends up working in risk. It made me think maybe there's something more to this that I don't know about and Drew delivered in spades, explaining to me how good risk management can be in enabling organisations to be more confident to do great and impactful things. Drew talks to me about the concept of operational resilience, how it enables better decision making and why it's important for organisations working in an increasingly complex environment. Stay tuned for the best part where Drew explains how risk management is just like a beach ball. This is the best analogy I've heard of how risk management works and how it enables better forward momentum and decision making for organisations. If you want to deep dive with me on some of the big ideas raised by Drew in this episode and any number of our other 300 plus episodes to date, make sure you subscribe to The Hedgehog's Nest, my new Substack or email blog for the unaware where I do just this. You'll receive a quality email that I spend a few hours crafting each week direct to your inbox first thing on a Thursday morning, and it's a hit of positivity that lasts the whole week. Just hit, hit the link in the show notes to subscribe or head to hedgehogsnest.substack.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Drew as much as I did. <laughs> Drew Corby, uh, last time we did this, it must have been four years ago. I tried to find the episode, but you haven't got it up anymore. So um, I think I think it's at least four, maybe five. You're well out of date. You're mm. like a carton of milk that's just sat there for too long and just just growing some uh, mild bacteria on it. But um, I see you all the time. We go to comedy together. We hang out. We talk about life. We talk about business. You've got more children than me in a beautiful new house, so you're doing better. But how are you? 
It's not a competition. Um, I'm, do- <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to compete with you if that's any help. <laughs> uh, it's been good. It's been it's been um, a wild ride. I remember when we first met, you were, you hadn't even started this podcast. It, it was, uh, and I, I think I helped. I helped in my mind, helped you out, and you've you've surpassed my podcasting career. That's what I do with epically. people. Like, yeah. I, I get them to help me, and then I try and defeat them with my own product. It worked. I'm a great you guy. I'm a yep. really good friend. No, I, I remember that well, actually. I remember um, it was 36 degrees. I came to see you in the York Butter Factory uh, in the dungeon. We, we recorded together. Mm. And you were fantastic. And I was just a bloody mess. I remember rocking up in a singlet and just not knowing what to talk about. Um, but you, you kind of were a critical uh, person in my journey to podcasting because you reached out, you had this – Phenomenal podcast, the Pathways podcast, remember it well. And it was just great. You really introduced me to the world of creating um, through that medium, which I've since really fall, fallen in love with. Well, yeah, I th- from memory, <clears throat> it was uh, post New York sabbatical when you uh, when you came down. You call that a sabbatical for me? I think so. I think, I think it was you called. You said you, walk, you walked around New York and you came up with the um, the purpose know, the, stuff. Yeah, the purpose you, stuff. You, that's that's right. a great. That's yeah. a great memory. Mm. Yeah. So I called it a uh, an early life crisis. <laughs> Sabbatical is very generous, but I'll I'll take it. Um, yeah. So like after all that, it was like you know what am I going to do? The public service clearly not for me. Um, I'm going to do two purpose driven things, and that's yeah. I think it was the right time to be talking about purpose. But um, as I found out a few years later, and and uh, many spent projects and hours later, not the right time to learn, launch a small purpose-driven consultancy. <laughs> no, no, I had the same experience. So, yes. Uh, yes. Yep. You've had an amazing journey. I mean, you're um, uh, you're a big deal now at, at Aware Super. Um, you're uh, very involved in risk. What, what's, the, what's your role title there? I am the head of risk strategy and enablement. Yeah, but you've also got like phenomenal experience in team leadership, um, understanding people, management, how organizations work. And I think I've always just really enjoyed having conversations with you about all of those things, but also the different perspective you bring in sort of a risk-informed framework of understanding things. Do you want to just sort of break down for me like how you found risk and how you sort of got into that space and, and maybe a bit of your journey even before that? So team management, leadership, um, your your journey into before Aware Super. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I've been aware for it's coming on – Four years, I think, this year. Um, four year work anniversary. Congratulations. Four year work anniversary. That's right. <laughs> uh, that's right. And and, and thanks for saying I'm a big deal. I wouldn't say I'm a giant deal at Aware Super in the grand scheme of things. But I just uh, meant that you're six foot five, aren't you? So. I'm six four at best. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm a small Viking uh, in in the grand scheme of things. But um, I uh, I am trying to practice taking on compliments. So thank you for the compliment. Um, where did I start in risk? So I, I was an operational manager. Um, I, I did my undergraduate in marketing and business. Um, and uh, as everyone does when they realize their career trajectory is not doing well, they go back to university. So I went back to do a, um, a graduate certificate or master's in business. And at the time, my um, supervisor was doing his uh, PhD in risk. And uh, I've was inquisitive enough to ask what, what's all that about, and he was working on airport security risk at the time. And um, I shoehorned some independent study into risk management, and um, and the rest they say is history, I guess. So I transitioned from energy retailing operational management um, into risk management in insurance and banking. And then as I 
picked that up. I also tried to do tech startups for seven or so years, uh, joined a startup, and then I returned um, victorious uh, back to uh, <laughs> risk management and superannuation. Uh, and that, that's probably the, the 50,000 foot view, but I'll let you dive into that. That, that was a together. really succinct, um, I was expecting like 10 to 15 minutes, but thank you. Um, brevity is always welcome here. Um, but what a journey and, and doing some really interesting things as well. And I think you forgot to mention some of the great stuff around sort of ed tech, um, Acacia, which is awesome that was one of your original projects and you've had a couple and you, you're also just like one thing i do notice about you beyond the the fact that you're in risk like i i would have thought most people in risk just like aren't like you are you is there an archetype of a person who enters the risk space yeah yes yeah so as, as a quick if people don't know what risk management is it's usually the, the best way not to make friends at a barbecue when you say risk management. <laughs> so I don't tend to bring it up too often. That in accounting, maybe? Yeah. Well, even accounting is like a practical application in someone's life. I think uh, when I think about risk management, it's um, largely driven by regulation in, in Australia, particularly. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, Australia has um, a really great long history of prudential risk management. Um, the, the crash course is if you're old enough to remember what. Uh, HIH insurance was. Um, they went bankrupt overnight and left a third of Australians uninsured, wow. uh, which is not great. And out of that, uh, APRA was formed, which is the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority. And um, they ask all uh, trustee license holders to conduct what's called internal risk management. So there's three lines of defence. Uh, line one is everybody who's not in the risk team Line two is the risk team, usually very, very small. And line three is um, audits and um, external regulatory bodies and that type of thing. So when we're talking about risk, we're talking about operational resilience. And um, the board sets an appetite through consultation with the risk team. So they might say, we have a moderate appetite for um, transformation risk. That's an example. Mm -hmm. um, and that would mean that we're taking on key projects, we're spending lots of money in maybe a digital transformation or a, um, a growth transformation. Therefore, if we restrict the business, they're not going to take on the opportunity of that risk management. So we're giving people the opportunity to, to operate um, at a higher higher appetite, essentially. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And I think for listeners, they might be familiar with terms like risk appetite already. So like a board setting a risk appetite in the governance sort of space, mm. and then a risk register or risk framework um, operationally. So in terms of how you run the organisation day to day, you know, having an active um, and up-to-date register of the types of risks involved in running business or organisation, and then treatments for those risks as well. You could join my team, mate. That's that's basically it. Yeah. Well, this, yeah. Isn't, this the, uh, isn't this the interview? <laughs> this is the interview, yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. Day okay. one, day one's tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's what I've gleaned from my basic understanding. But I think it's, I mean, what you've opened up for me in our conversations about risk is just that it's inherently exciting in a way because it helps you to, I guess, know what's coming and be very strategic in decision-making, but also, you know, like obviously make better choices as well. Yeah, I think what drew me to risk management, there were, there were two factors. The first one was... Um, I, in my late 20s, I, I had a compelling drive to try and become a C-suite one day. And I had this very um, <clears throat> important conversation with the then COO of uh, this place I was working at. And he said, to be a C-suite, you need a very deep technical reason to be at that table. Okay. And um, then I did a bit of research at the time. I think 80% of CEOs were once CFOs. I was like, why is that? Why, why, why are all the CFOs becoming CEOs? Yep. And the common answer for that was uh, that the average 
CFO truly understood how the business operated. Mm. They knew all the money flew, yep. you know, and where, where value was created. Yep. I saw risk management as the next the next move forward from there. So usually what happens, um, in a, particularly in growing businesses, um, the financial component is the, the input, but the output is the operational value that you're trying to create. Yep. So where risk management brings is a very comprehensive understanding of all types of risk. So there's financial risk, but there's a deep vein of un, of non-financial risk, operational, strategic, regulatory risk that tends to bring businesses unstuck. Mm. So so they spend the money um, and it's all supposed to work, but then they get um, compromised. I think attrition is a, a big factor here. You know, if people they, attrition? People <coughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So particularly in services, which mm. is like you know, 70% of the Australian economy is services-based businesses now. Um you can grow, and you know we we love a good you know halftime speech. We're going to grow. We're going to conquer. We're going to become the biggest whatever it is on the hill. And a lot of people go, oh no, and they leave <laughs> right well, in that moment because of the ambition. Yeah, because particularly if you've been in an industry that hasn't gone through a heavy growth trajectory, the 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 kind of um, incumbent group of employees you have have joined because they don't like change. <laughs> <laughs> well, that yeah. so that's what I, yeah. I think that circles me back nicely to the risk uh, space mm. or appetite of certain people and just you know a lot of people um like to maintain a status quo approach to their work and that they don't like things to change too much particularly in heavily disrupted industries so maybe that's that's a factor absolutely and, and then what what risk brings to the everyday person so it's it's very it tends to be pitched at that board executive level regu- on the regulatory c- component but where it really hits the road is as a middle manager um it's very hard to quantify, you know, what does the board want? What does the CEO want? What does the three managers above me want? Therefore, what do I want and need? Yeah. And it becomes quite individual and you're kind of taking, you're kind of often, um, you know, taking the things you want from the strategy, the things you can ignore. And everyone works out very quickly what they can ignore in a big strategy. Yeah, so I think yeah. you go from objective to subjective and um, choose your own adventure very quickly. Exactly. So, so what risk management does is it says, okay, and I, I kind of describe it as um, the JavaScript of a business, right? It's like a universal language yep. that allows a technologist to speak to a lawyer, to speak to a regulatory person, to speak to a product person, all in the same room. And they can actually have uh, a universal language of conversation, which is, are we inside our appetite? Mm-hmm. And what should we or should we not be doing to maintain that while we pursue this this ambitious goal? Okay, but you've got people who would just look at that and find ways to um, get around that all the time. Absolutely, that's why I exist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's why you're here. That's what you bring. Right. But I yep. think from what I hear from how you do things, um, you like to really get quite granular and map things out and have frameworks, performance um, roadmaps, indicators. How do you actually make sure the rubber hits the road and it isn't a free-for-all, choose-your-all adventure fest, even once you've got the basics down? Yeah. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll answer, I haven't quite answered your question, so I'll come back quickly. So, I'm, yeah. I, I would not consider myself to be um, a typical risk person. Um, Neither. That's why you're here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and beca- the reason was is um, uh, when risk was created by the government, essentially as a mandate, that's why I was trying to get with that story. Mm. Um, the people who, the first wave of employees who joined that line two cohort were um, actuaries, auditors, consultants. Yeah. Right? And they, they they're they're the, really the people you don't want to meet at the barbecue. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Depends on <laughs> you which barbecue. You. You if you throw it in order to barbecue, I know they're your mates. I'm sure you're pretty good, yeah. Maybe if it's a company barbecue, they'll all be there and it'll be awesome. Oh, look, I'll be honest with you. When we go to all team things, the risk team always seems to sit at the same table because no one else wants to sit with them. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so, so that first cohort are, are people from that kind of ilk. Yep. We're, we're going through the second wave of risk management. It's now more a formal qualification. Yep. It's um, the focus of it is more less about risk compliance and risk management and operational resilience. Mm. So I um, I was probably often seen as Drew Drew was one of us. He was an operational manager. He understands us, right? And to kind of answer your second question, uh, I find it very important to offer risk advice if I actually understand how that business operation works and operates yep. and functions. So it gives you a little bit more kind of credibility in what you're saying because you've been on the front lines. Yeah. So I never. Um, I think where risk professionals have often made errors is asking people to learn their language and then get annoyed at them when it comes at them in broken chunks. Yep. So that's not perfect English. So no. I understand you. Um, whereas I try and have the tact of don't I understand risk, but talk to me in your language. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll inject risk, in, risk into your world rather than you yep. having to kind of retrofit it around the so side. So you're running yeah. your sort of like a uh, in-person Duolingo with them a little bit. Yeah, we call it that. Yeah, in-person <laughs> Duolingo. <laughs> uh, and look it, at the bare bone basics. It's you know what? Why should I care? What what value? What value does it bring? Why shouldn't I just circumvent it? Yeah. Right. Which is which is why shouldn't I just do me? Right. Right. And um, you know the the most the you get people's attention when you say the board and the regulatory body that that gets their ears pricked up. I don't want to get in trouble. It's a great place to start, but how does it create value? Um, needs to become really, really quickly as the second part of the conversation. So when I so where people tend to go with risk is they go, oh, the risk people are going to slow us down, get in our way, you know, overcomplicate this, put tons of bureaucracy in. Uh, I tend to say it the other way around, which is if you understand the appetite you've been set, the the whole purpose of risk is to play as close to that line as we can. So um, you don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to play above the appetite. But at the same time, you don't want to get in trouble for not playing close enough to the appetite. And we can really quickly get to that conversation in five minutes because we've got the appetite. So you don't have to work it out. You can supply it to your business area. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, in my different language, I'd kind of think of it almost like a, a purpose statement or a really clear statement of where the organization is going and being able to bring everything that a team's doing, sort of does this align to that or not, or even a set of strategic objectives or priorities. For me, for me, that's sort of more my language. Like are we, are we hitting – is what our team's OKRs or our sort of operating mm. you know, um, objectives, mm. how closely are they aligned? Are they the right fit to the strategic priorities we're pursuing? And that gives us a really good north star as to kind of whether we're heading in the right direction or not, maybe. Yeah, good, good, good uh, absolutely. And I'll yep. yes, Andrew. So yep. that, that's yep. what's great. So that you know, you've just given me a business conversation. You know, we, we've gone through OKR adoption the last couple of years as well. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. the new, the new yep. language of business. What risk would then say is um, – this is the quantifiable proof whether you are in or outside your appetite. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so, so you have your business goal. Let, yeah. Let's just say we've got a you know grow user acquisition by twenty percent. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is great. You don't want to do it by turning off all the security requirements to your app because um, you get this initial kind of onboarding experience with one click. But yeah. then when you lose all that data and yeah. you know you have to apologize, you'll lose them all very quickly. Yeah. So this so. is the this is where risk makes that uh, it helps to clarify and elevate and make those. Uh, high fidelity OKRs, really. Yeah, yeah. It, it just I, I see it as giving you um, the next level of definition on how to execute that OKR without having to write OKRs. At, at Aware yeah, Super, yeah. we have a risk, a specific risk KR. Yep. 
um, at, at the group level, but yep. we also do um, risk work at the division level as well. So It's really interesting. And so how do you reconcile being like a creative at heart? Um, because you've podcasted, you had one of the best um, book ideas I've ever heard. And I'll leave it to you as to whether you want to say what the title of that book was, but yep. it's something I laugh about all the time and yep. really want you to write it one day. Mm-hmm. Um, you've talked about writing a book. I really think you should write at least three books because <laughs> you've got a very novel take on the world. Yep. And, um, you know, we go to stand-up comedy together. You've always got amazing ideas in the startup world. You've been startup mentor. Um, <clears throat> you're, a, I think you're a creative also. So how do, you, how do you reconcile that? And what's that like being in your space? And do you, do you have to modify? yourself um do you get to just do you take that kind of outside of the workplace how does it all play out for you uh it's it's a good question it's something which i've always grappled with um <clears throat> before i even joined corporates i was i tried to be a musician um so i forgot, I forgot yeah. about that so <clears throat> and uh that that was my passion if you asked me when i was 17 um you know all i'll be doing when i'm 40 until i turn 40 this year to be you know famous you know musician that clearly didn't pan out. So um, I, I think when I when I think about creativity, um, I think you know, first of all, what is it? And I look at it as uh, going from zero to one, you know, taking thin air and turning it into something tangible through a set of tools. Now yep. with music, it was you know audio, podcasters, audio. Mm. In business, I think that's that's why I tend to play well in the strategic world. I'm thinking about well, what does risk at a way super need to be in 2030. Yep. Right. Cause it's, it's, and, and how do we get there? And what are the building blocks to get there? Um, who are the people involved? What's the collaboration effort involved? My challenge is um, in startups, you can't be creative enough because that's your competitive advantage. Yep. Right. That if you, you can out creative, out zero to one, your comp, the incumbents, you'll yeah. win the marketplace. Yep. When you're winning an incumbent, <laughs> you've got to make sure that you turn it, turn it down a little bit because and I've really had to practice that for the last um, two years or so whilst being in this role. You can really overwhelm people with the possibility of creativity. Yep. Um, and it's really it, – it's and dilution is the wrong word. I think it's how do you concentrate it into um, something they can consume and respond to rather than look at and get fearful of. Yeah. That's really interesting. So you're able to do that and do you – how much has risk sort of changed and risk management practices changed over time? I feel like it's gone to a more strategic <clears throat> function that sort of supports the C-suite a lot more and kind of the way companies uh, fulfill on their strategic objectives. Um, but how have you sort of adapted your way of doing things and in, in sort of the places you've been? And do you kind of – are you able to integrate some of your operational management experience and some of the creativity too? Absolutely. Um, I think – I think the where it's changing dramatically is um, this word resilience is becoming really important. So it used to be about risk management yep. and sustainable risk management, but now it's about operational resilience. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, it's just really calling out, um, you know, we. I think we've been saying we live in a, a dynamic world for about 10 years, right? And um, what does that word mean? It means that uh, the rate of change that can occur is um, now almost borderless. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the fact that we're sitting here and say, oh, gee, what's the inflation rate in America right now? You know, we were having that conversation 15 years ago because yep. it didn't really matter because, yep. it, it, you know, it was very hard for that to affect our local yes. economy. But yeah. now we're kind of all plugged in. Particularly uh, the US economy. It's just like whatever yeah. happens there happens here the next day. R- right. And and the, particularly the consumer sentiment yep. component, right? Yep. We're so plugged into that culture. We yep. really understand how those businesses work. Um, so, so where risk is – playing more is how can you be more forecastable? I think in the past, risk management was very um, results-driven. So this is how we performed against our appetite last quarter. 
And here is where we need to focus time, money, and attention to- So you're saying there's a bit of a retrospective prospective shift. <clears throat> That's right. So now it's more about how can we forecast? So, yeah. so um, I, uh, I'll be very visual here on the audio medium, but I, I, when I think about risk, and this is, this, is the, this is the conversation that tends to overwhelm most people. So let's see if I can overwhelm your audience for a second. That's <laughs> it's a great exercise. Right, okay. Yeah. So, so when I think about risk, um, I think about um, your business is living inside a beach ball. I'm okay. still with you. Okay, good. All right. And um, the pressure, you, you can apply pressure on any side of that beach ball um, and that will push the air and the pressure onto your business in, in an array, in a 360-degree array of, of outcomes. And that pressure will create a response. And that's kind of the marketplace, right? So it could be internal pressure, it could be external, whatever it might be. What risk management's doing is it's saying, it's acknowledging you are in the sphere rather than just on a, a linear financial component, right? Rather than pure financial risk, yep. profit and loss, do we have money running out of cash, insolvency? What we're saying is um, for us to be resilient in this moment, what does that mean? And that could mean just staying still because staying still with immense pressure on one side could be a real achievement. Yep. And I think that's that's where it's changing slightly because endless growth, we, we talk about like, it's so hard to have endless growth, endless growth. Sometimes um, staying still whilst your competitors get pushed backwards is is a is a great outcome. And as we go into this kind of more you know, economic downturn period, we're all facing into that. That tends to be a win. You know, mm. our competitors have gone insolvent, and we have remained solvent. That that would be considered a win. Yep. Whereas five years ago, our competitors are growing at ten percent. We're only growing at five percent. That would be a loss. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love the beach ball, and I think you kept me the whole way because, like, I've been to the beach before. <laughs> I've played with beach balls. I don't really have much interest in anything else you said, but it was great. <laughs> Thank, thanks for sharing. I'm glad that um, was <laughs> no, no, that was seriously really helpful. That makes a lot of sense and a very good analogy. Um, how, how does, like, for, in the way, in terms of the way you live your life, do you kind of think in a risk sort of framework for decisions that you make in your life outside of your work? Uh, yeah, well, I think naturally, yeah. What well, I don't think we can properly compartmentalize as much yeah. as we were told to yeah. leave our work at the door, our life at the door a yeah. few years ago. Um, what, what I try to do is um, I think about where I naturally like to exist. Right? So I'm not a financial guy. You know, we <clears throat> I don't really know. All I know is our mortgage is really expensive. I'm going to keep paying oh, it. Oh, right? same. Yeah, right. right. That, 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 that's there. Yep. How we pay it just tends to kind of work, if yep. that makes sense, yep. which I also appreciate is the fastest way to go bankrupt, right? Yep. So so financial risk is not my natural place. Yep. Uh, I'm more um, – I naturally think about, well, is everyone in the house happy? You know, are we all getting enough sleep? Yep. Right? Yep. <laughs> are, we, are we enjoying the life in this house that we are, you know, having this increasing mortgage rate on? Yeah. Um, so what risk management brings is, okay, well, what are the things I don't naturally think about that I should be thinking about? So right? this is uh, helpful because this is telling me that risk has given you a way to prioritize better. Uh, I think it's it's given me a way um, to zero in on the things that matter that I wouldn't naturally think about, which awesome. is, you, could, you could argue with prioritization. Yeah. But, but I think if I was left to my own non-risk devices, um, I'd, I'd be um, – I'd be a mix of being too short-sighted and too long-sighted. Yeah. I think the average human can think about, oh, you know, 2040, 2050, the world's changed, we're all in flying cars, and they can think about in six months I'm going to go on a holiday. It's the five, the five, 10, 15 years in between that are really hard for us to navigate and visualize. Yeah. I think that's what risk management brings. It's like, well, in 20, in seven years, it's 2030, in your late 40s, you know, you've got these many children, these many house, oh, house isn't big enough. Oh, shh. Crap. Okay, if our house isn't big, 
<laughs> yeah. Genau. We're going to have, oh, and some of that realization. Because your wife wants like seven kids, so. Well, not seven. No, definitely not seven. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that, and then, oh, you suddenly, okay, well, how, how will we exist in um, a house that needs to be big enough? And then suddenly, well, what does a big house mean? Yep. Space. What does space mean? You know, what, do we need, these are all the things you start thinking yeah. about, but then. Let me, what, let me play it back to you a little bit because it's interesting. So mm-hmm. you're you're adopting like a lot of long-termism um, yes. in your thinking. Like you, you've said 2030 at least three times in the episode. and Seven, think- seven years away, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so is that like your kind of time frame that you're thinking about in terms of how you act today? Is it, do you work in, in like a seven to 10-year time frame? Or? I, I try to, yeah. But I think- You've talked to me before about like turning 50 and kind of like your goals for that. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never and, thought about that at all. Right. And, but thing is then where I struggle is thinking about in three years and four years. Um, so usually what happens, and while it's kind of like going with like this overwhelming stream of consciousness, usually you get to a point of like, oh, I've got to go, but I'll just, I'll just watch Netflix and go to bed, right? Yep. You, you, you kind of give up on it because it gets too overwhelming. Yes. Right? What risk management does is it breaks it down into at least themes. Okay, how much money do we need? If we can't afford it, let's have that realization now, not when the children are 10. Let's let's just say, look, everyone's going to be in bug business for 25, the end, right? Do you think the children make a big difference? Like, like, has that made you think more future? Uh, uh, Well, so so using risk, um, there is more inherent materiality in my decision making. (laughs) You just went full robot on me. That's right, yeah. Talk talk about materiality just for anyone who doesn't understand it. So so I guess it's just what's at risk, you know? So, So- you know, back when I was um, without children, um, and I, I made a decision. That decision only affected me, right? but now it affects the household, um, which means that the weight of that decision needs to be carefully, more carefully considered. Um, we always think about money stuff, so it could be a holiday or a new car, but it could also just be um, where I choose to work and live. Mm. Right, so I've we moved to the suburbs to have more space, but it also means I resent that. By the way, yeah, let's, it's not being good for me. You didn't consider me I at all in that equation. I didn't consider you. Yeah, I you, didn't you consider, used to be very close by, and I, I enjoyed that. I did, I did. We went many COVID walks together. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but um, but that also meant that my commute was now an hour each way, so I had to balance it out and say, okay. Um, you know, we've got this COVID silver lining. We can all work two or three days a week in the office. I think that will probably normalise the next few years back to four to five days a week in the so? office. I think the, so. Yeah. People will tolerate it. People are very um, <clears throat> people are very um. How do I say this without being offensive? Oh, bugger it! People are very entitled. That well, that that is. I'll, I'll let's use that language. I think um, let's what's driving their entitlement is is probably where I start thinking about it. And, and we have um. I'm old enough to remember when we went through the first GFC. Yep, and, me too, yep. Yep, and um, the joke back then was I could quit my job at nine and have a job by, by lunchtime. <laughs> and the GFC yep. hit and yep. you felt lucky to have a job. Yeah. If we go back into conditions where you feel lucky to be employed, um, the conditions that employment can be leveraged against you a little bit, if yep. that makes sense. So, yep. look, you know, we've got people lying out the door. If you want a job here, it's it's five days a week. Yeah. Um, Do you think the powers return to employers a bit? Uh, if if the market conditions go where they could, I think it will. Yep. I think it will. But on the other side of it, it'd be very industry specific. Yep. Right? And I think that's what's different now is that the macro economy is so micro. You know, we, we, we are seeing enormous building companies go bankrupt in this country. Yep. Okay. But we're also seeing, um, you know, other industries survive and prosper at the same time. Right? Yep. So, if, so if you were – a builder, you should be you're probably pretty worried right now. Mm. Um, but if you're a insolvency lawyer, you're probably looking things are looking up for you. <laughs> so. it's, a, it's a great time to be alive. Yeah. 
<laughs> Friends, <laughs> forensic accountant, killing yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, baby. That's right. Um, mm. So, so that, that's quite how. So the inherent materiality component we imply back there as well. Is well, if I if I've got choice of employment, then and the the salary for that employment is largely a commodity, like you get paid around the yep. same. Then the the conditions of employment become really important. Yes, yeah. But if the difference is I have a job, or I don't have a job. Suddenly, the materiality of that decision to not take that job has giant impacts yep. on my life. Therefore, I will. Let's call it suffer. Yep. But I, yeah. But I mean, look, it's so agree with mm. just about everything you said, but I do find it really bizarre how people wouldn't want to be in the workplace with their colleagues because I think that some of the best times I've had is <clears> when <throat> it was five days a week in the office. And I know things have changed a lot. And I think, yeah, it's, it's almost actually quite hard to remember the time when it was a traditional five-day working week and when you needed to get special permission to get that day of working from home. Uh so, and this is where it'll become, this is, you know, just me being a futurist for a second. I think it's like, like anything is um, because it was very expensive to lease office space, everyone just got the office experience, right? And yep. uh, we're in this beautiful co-working space at the moment, right? Commons, come on, shout out. Yeah, fantastic. And what I love about co-working spaces is to be, to offer value that has to be very dynamic, yep. right? So, they're offering you a way to do different types of work throughout the day as, as the need arises. Yeah. I think that that will bring people back into the office. If I come to the office, but I'm not chained to my desk, it's not what it what it used to be. It's when I come to the office, I go, "Wow, I couldn't have done that at home." Yeah, and um, I think about that as being quite cyclical and seasonal. So you might do, and you've seen companies do this. You, you might do eight days, not in a row, but you know, two four day weeks in the office once yep. a quarter. Yeah, through a planning phase or a you know delivery yep. phase, and then you might allow people to go back. And kind of work from home for the other eight weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I think the battle line that I've seen drawn, especially by the big four and some of the, the bigger banks and other companies, is sort of fifty percent of the time overall in the month is in the office. And it's just it's just so interesting that that's like um, that line is the subject of a company saying it should be more, and then a class action almost or like <coughs> a mass revolt through mm-hmm. unions mm-hmm. against that kind of decision. And and for me that that because they're you know some of the, the biggest companies we have in Australia. I mean, it's just a fascinating case study in how things have changed and how they've shifted. And there's a type of work that you do, right? Like yeah. I think if you're in a very um, – there's this great – what won't go too far down the rabbit hole, I'd, I'd expect. But there's a big difference between a team and a group of people working shoulder to shoulder oh, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, right? sure, so, so I think sure. if you're in a genuine yeah. team where you depend on those yeah, people, yeah, yeah, yeah. time together, it builds that trust and that bond on yeah. some level. Uh, if you're just a kind of battery hand employee, you know, I, I used to be one of those. It's yeah. working call centers. Yep. Um, you know that you do get some kind of shoulder to shoulder, you know, you know, team ambience. Yeah. But it's it's certainly not crucial for you to do a great job. I think that's the, that's the difference. I want to work from home because I'm more productive. Yeah. Is different to uh, when I come into the office, I feel like I can create better value. Right? There's a difference. The other thing I just want to tack onto that, without going further down the rabbit hole, is I think it's changed the nature of management and leadership for the for the better. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, we're moving further away from that Hawthorne effect style management where we're in a factory. If I'm not directly supervising you constantly, your productivity will drop and I will have to use uh, mainly sticks, not many carrots to ensure optimal performance. I think right now we're in a space where it's much more about trust-based leadership and Mm. relationship-based management. And, you know, you, you know, I'll give my own example. You know, for me, um, I work in a team that's by state. So half the teams in Adelaide, half the states, half the teams in Victoria. Um, Half the team is uh, 
well, probably remote half of the week and in the office maybe one or two days a week, but different in Adelaide to Victoria. So you, you, you actually cannot have a consistent policy across both teams for when people are in the office, nor should it matter if you trust your team and they trust you. So it actually has, I think, for, for, for leaders who lean into that kind of mentoring, coaching, empowerment model, it's fantastic and it, it hasn't really changed things much at all. People seem to be happier. The other weighted consideration is thinking about, um, I think employees, because of cost of living pressures, are much more conscious of the idea that because they don't have to come into the office, if they do, they're paying for petrol, they're paying for parking, they're paying for their commute in time, and they're seeing that as a real cost, whereas before it wasn't a noticeable cost because everyone was doing it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's um, a really elegant way of describing, yeah, the, the situation at hand, and I'll, I'll, um, I'll just add one more little, what would be like a little sub-point to that, yeah. which is um, uh, how impact is measured is becoming yeah. a lot better. Yeah. Uh, it used to be... Um, I can see that you are working, therefore you are working, yes. right? So present presenteeism, yes. right? Yes. So, yes. so because uh, I I cut my teeth in in frontline management, mm. you know, oh, they're always here on time. Then when they turn up, they're you know, amiable and nice people. Don't take many sick days, you know, and um, they they put their head down and get the work done, right? Um, why, you know, and I think, well, why is it that all the work is always done by five o'clock on Friday? Just the law of averages should say that some days it should be Saturday at noon, other days should be Thursday at noon. Like, yeah. Why is it always? Yeah. So, so I think that's that's what's changing as well is when you can actually measure the impact at the employee level, not the department or team or company level. Yeah. Um, people can have a more diverse practice of work to hit that impact layer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you've nailed it. Absolutely. And so for you, how do you express your creativity outside of work now? What are you doing? What are you sort of thinking about and working on? And um, even what do you enjoy to do when you're not um, uh, plowing away at risk? <laughs> plowing away at risk. <laughs> Didn't you, know how to put that. I'm going to put that on a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> I, well, I've got two young children, um, so They're I've awesome. got a three, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So that that takes up all the other time. How um, many teeth has Freddie got now? I should know that. Uh, like I want to. I want to say six. Okay. Yeah, um, at least six. Um, I, th- I think. Uh, look, having having young children um, uses up whatever energy I have left for creativity. Yeah. Um, it's more try not to be a grumpy dad. It's probably probably most of my. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, and I've I've been lucky enough to take a uh, a month of parental leave, so I'm in, I'm halfway through that stint at the moment, and um, you know it's it's a grind, right? Like it's you know it's, it, half an hour, half an hour. It can be this whimsical, incredible adventure of finger painting, followed by a giant tantrum about washing your hands. So I think um, <laughs> there's that bit. If I whatever time I have left, um, I like to. Um, I like to do things that are incredibly difficult. Um, so I try and play golf with a terrible back and Dude, biomechanics. I think yeah. you're actually quite good at golf. No, no. You're it, definitely very obsessed with it. Uh, yeah. So I'm an enthusiastic, poor performing amateur at best. So you watch yeah. golf. You listen to golf podcasts. You I watch do. golf YouTube. So you talk to yeah. me about golf sometimes. I don't know why. <laughs> and I have to respond. It's weird. <laughs> you don't have to respond. Right. Uh, I feel but, pressured. So, but on the creativity point, I think that what I get from that pursuit of this thing I'll never be actually good at is uh, signing up to um, this can't be achieved in an hour. This will take a decade. Dude, you and me, I think that's one of the reasons we're good mates is the incrementalism, like that 1% every week or every, you know, however often. I mean, Mm. what you're describing about golf is exactly how I felt about podcasting when I started. I saw you doing it. I'm like, there's no 
bloody way I could ever do this well. So I'm just going to keep trying maybe 300 times and see where it takes me. And like, you know, I love um, I love the doubt, the self-doubt and doubt of others. That drives me. Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've probably quit golf every other week for the last decade or so. And I always I come back. That. Yeah, I was like, you know, what am I doing? You know, you know, it's just questionable amount of time on a thing that you're never actually going to get any value out of. But 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 I think that's the point, right? It's um the the creativity is can I can I use my brain and my body to do this thing that no one else really cares about? <laughs> this, this is like yeah. one of the hardest things to be good at in the world. Well, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I you mean, say, well, what's harder than golf? Like to be good at oh, brain surgeon? Probably, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, but but yeah. I, I think but you can't do that as a hobby, really. No, well, no. Well, Christopher Dunch did, but you know, like <laughs> most others wouldn't probably not turn know. this into a golf podcast. You turn all your listeners <laughs> off. I think what I enjoy about it mainly is, um, you know, you, 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 I someone at a five foot seven person can play the same or better golf than a six foot four person. Yeah. There's, there's no real biological free lunch when it comes to golf. Yes. It's, it's it's just your ability to persevere. And um, building that that resilience in your thinking and your ability to get into that flow state, right? And that's that's what I find. Flow state, yeah. Mm. So the more I think about it, the more the more I'm not very good at golf, yeah. Right. And the less I think about it, I either play the same golf as I was thinking about it, or I actually play a little bit better. Which which is this strange concept, I think, for a you know a corporate office employee, because usually the more you think about something, the better you get at it. So. I think it's just an awesome life lesson <clears throat> in there about um, the value of trying things that are um, way too hard for you and persisting until you get somewhat better, because there's huge reward in it. I mean, how good do you feel around you know when you've adopted a tip that's worked for you and it's produced better results, and then you refine it, and then it all goes to shit, and you have to start again. And like, you know, there is something to that kind of um, seeing improvement from things that you've activated yourself. Look, and there's that through line. I think um, I've always, you know, trying to be a famous musician um, from Brisbane. That must be the second hardest thing after golf. Well, maybe it's it's harder than golf. It's right. I'd say it's harder. Um, It's a below brain surgery, but above golf. Trying to do an incredibly difficult conceptual podcast from Melbourne was a podcast. (laughs) Sorry, start up with a podcast from Melbourne, right? We were doing the same thing. We were both doing two of the hardest things at the same time. Right. And and what's great about it is you have no choice but to fail. There's no sugary treats in that process, right? It's just kind of you you earn whatever value you create. and then <clears throat> I'm going through this phase now of like trying to get rid of stuff, right? So I'm selling all of my podcast music stuff. You know, I'm trying to start this new phase of my life where creativity doesn't need to be connected to my ego or connected to my um, my kind of, uh, you know, I suppose, my uh, external value in the world. Or your self-perception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just something that I do and I enjoy it for the act of doing it, not because if I do it really well, I get this incredible financial social reward at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, my best comparison at the moment has been running and like the journey to trying to be an okay runner. Mm. Um, it's quite funny because I'm like fully crippled in my body. I've got one ACL, mm. um, had a micro discectomy on my L4, L5, so my back screwed, my knees, only got one knee really. But just the getting into the running for the enjoyment of it, but then progressively trying to improve on your time and get better and get technique tips from people. For me, that's kind of a similar concept. It's just the, the constant effort on something that you may never be amazing at, but if you can go from being terrible to good, wouldn't that be something? Yeah, I, th- I think what's funny is that this is the this is the, the the so where my brain naturally goes is yeah. 
you know, getting to a foundational level, you know, is, is an incredible base camp that few people achieve on most things. Yeah. And then foundational to good is the next journey, good to great, great to excellent, excellent to world-class. Yeah. And usually, particularly for creative and physical athletic pursuits, you need to be world-class to survive financially at that thing, which is why it's so incredibly hard to yeah. do. Uh, I think we're all privileged that we can be good at something and still pay our mortgage in a lot of, yeah, <laughs> a yep. lot of circumstances. Yep, totally. We're the lucky ones. There's no doubt. Right. So the real conversation is from good to great and to great to excellent. It, it tends to be um, the, you know, then there's, there's one of the books, kind of 80% there, halfway done. You know, you, get, you can get foundational to good by being kind of 80% competent. Yeah. 90, 95, 99, you know, that, that's, that's where the perseverance and you almost need to spend the same amount of time to get from zero to 80 for it to get from 80 to 90. Yeah. And that's where most people tend to, particularly as the financial pressure to get their roles off, yeah. it's how do you motivate yourself to get to that next echelon if you want to get there yeah. um, and not enjoying and that's the, enjoy the journey, like enjoying the journey, but the journey needs to end at some yeah. point. Otherwise, it's, it's just a marathon of, you know, running through a desert, right? So. Let's talk about some of the other things you're obsessive about and good at, or like you know, I think pretty good at coffee. Uh, yeah, tell me, tell me about your journey to creating the, the perfect home coffee setup <laughs> and, and, and why you care. Uh, well, I uh, I grew up in Brisbane. Uh, I, I've, I've been <laughs> That's told a that, great yeah, starting point as to why you care about good coffee. <laughs> I've been told it's I've I've been in Melbourne for a decade, so I've been over a decade now. So I've been told it's changed dramatically. But back back in the day, there wasn't much good coffee. So. I um I just got obsessive about um baking great coffee and um and that led me down the road where I'm now where um you know I I tend to make I try and make cafe great coffee at home. It's a it's a great you know they say like a dishwasher secret to a good marriage. Being able to give your kind of sleep deprived um, annoyed at your wife a fresh cup of coffee mm. is probably <laughs> is right agree, up there. Agree, agree. Right up there. Yep. Um, but for me it's just um I, I think uh, I think coffee. It's once again it's something which is quite easy to get good at, but very difficult to get excellent at. And um, to get excellent, it's all the one percent. It's a ten one percent yep. there, which which can become a bit obsessive if you're not careful. So there's that. I don't want to be world class. I just want to be like good, to, good to great. You know? can, can you stop yourself from like that improvement journey? Have you been able to like there's a, the there's, a, there's a financial ceiling. Like I'm quite good <laughs> class. I think you got to spend like ten thousand dollars on the grind. I'm like can't, I can't justify that. So yeah. the tamper is eleven grand. We, yeah. we can afford an next quarter. Yeah. But not do you want yet. good coffee or not? Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> And I think part of this for us, I mean, is like, I think for the same reasons you've outlined and I've outlined, this is why we love stand-up comedy because I think, you know, stand-up comedy, to be good at it and to actually hit an audience with the right material and to be unique and to be evergreen is probably the hardest thing, like one of the hardest things. Yeah, and um, I couldn't agree more. I I think anything with a very low barrier to entry – that education costs is just your time and effort brings a lot of people. Yeah. So it brings a lot of, of crappy comedians as well. I'm Terrible. Sure. Yeah. But it's an overnight success in 10 years thing. It's it's really <clears throat> only the the people who either have an incredible need for self-validation, <clears throat> which I'm sure most comedians start yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tend to start from some They're kind of tra- yeah, trauma at some level. Mm. Um, but then at the same time to – I really admire it because I think there's an economy there. And I went to see – um comedian with you it you know it we could have said those words and it would not have been funny i think we tried afterwards and it wasn't funny. yeah it wasn't like we shouldn't do this um (laughs) but uh but that person has spent a decade saying those seven words in that order with the right inflection and they entertain these thousand people you know what what an incredible expression like you don't need anything just in a microphone and and off you go and an audience yeah to do that so i think 
I think you know anything in the arts, I have a lot of respect for. Because I, I think it's so you know you, you tend to need twenty thousand hours to to get to excellent, and only the world class get paid, right? And that's the the big challenge of it. I like that, and, and so I think we we can say that we both enjoy things that are inherently beautiful because they're simple. So there's a simplicity in the beauty of it. But to execute on that simplicity and to deliver value, quality, and excellence is the hardest thing. Yeah. How do you make very complicated things appear easy? Yeah. That's that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the. Uh, I think we're, we've all been spoiled by the iPhones and the smartphones. I think um, I, I actually use it a lot with risk management. Is you know everyone wants it to be like an iPhone. Where you pay for things with your face. Yeah. Right? But people don't realize there's a giant circle in the desert with a hundred thousand people sitting in it making that work. Um, you know that that's a great lesson I think in in business because most people can't afford a hundred thousand people in desert to make you know face. I'm sure it's not hundred thousand people looking face ID, but yeah. you know what I mean. It's 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 so simple, um, it's so easy, but it's in, it took them you know, fifteen years to make it that simple and yep. that easy. Yeah, that's beautiful, mate. I've loved chatting with you, and it's been <clears> awesome hanging out. I, I really regret we didn't do this earlier, but I think it's the right time. Um, how can people connect with you? Learn a bit more about your work. You aware? <clears> yeah, sure. About it? Look, look I've, I've got nothing to promote, so um, uh, so I don't know if that's refreshing for your audience or not. But uh, <laughs> you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I I haven't posted to Facebook since uh, I think like 2014 or something. So, yeah. so I don't find think me people, I don't think that exists anymore. No, no, not no, I don't think so. Um, and uh, I'm not really on Instagram. So yeah, the LinkedIn is probably the best place. Um, Drew just, Corby, yeah, Drew Corby, Aware Super. I'm, I'm there with a pretty out of date photo to update. Yeah, but you talk about risk and other matters, coffee, stand up. Any, any limits? <laughs> any limits? <laughs> Anything you won't talk about? I think um, yeah, probably probably it depends on the day. Uh, probably- <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll post a schedule with yeah, in the show notes. Yeah, so. I think look, I I, um, I I really enjoy um, collaborating with people who are trying to make a genuine impact. Right. So so that, that's kind of what I look at. I think risk management allows people to have this really strong foundational knowledge to make impact with, and that's what I get really excited about. Is how can we use risk? as a tool of management and uh, less about tool of compliance. So that's, that's, if you've got some ideas around that, let me know and we'll have a chat. Yeah. Excellent call to arms to end with. Thanks for being here, mate. No worries. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.